Live from Charleston, welcome to episode 99G of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben OM99G. <laughs> I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 99Gth time by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. Now, I think, are we ready to say that our next episode will be episode 100? I think we're ready to say that. Okay, so we're going to say that. So this is episode 99G. It will be great. But it may feel like filler if you're ready for episode 100, which should be amazing. It's going to be a bit of a mega episode. I think that that's probably safe to say. It's going to be our opus. Yeah. So it good and the, bad. The pinned tweet to our podcast. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. So that should be pretty fun. Uh, but on this show, we're going to talk about things that happened recently, including uh, the end of Miami with Serena and Novak winning. And we're also going to talk about Star of Charleston and coming here. And we're going to share with you some audio from All Access Hour as well as some audio from us in the classroom getting our professor on <laughs> at the College of Charleston uh, earlier today speaking to a couple media classes. So we're going to give you some audio from that because we just love lecturing you guys like all sorts of students have to sit there listening to us too, who were great. My lesson takeaway from this is kids who sign up for classes at like 9.30 a.m. on a Tuesday are more likely to be engaged than people who roll in at 1 p.m. On, on Friday or whatever other weekend things I've done. It just, yeah. Timing matters, so hopefully the timing of this episode will be awesome for you guys as well. Let's start with Miami. Let's start with Serena, because, you know, ladies first, they go first. Serena walloped Carla Suarez Navarro, top 10 debutante. She was like, welcome to top 10, Carla. Here's a beatdown in less than an hour. Uh, 6-2-6-0, not really as close as the score indicated. Uh, thoughts on Serena winning, bouncing back after her Indian Wells injury with a knee and taking Miami. Business as usual for Serena, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say otherwise, given it's her eighth Miami title, which is a pretty incredible number. By far her most anywhere. Yeah, and uh, and especially just how she kind of played herself into the tournament. You know, she had some challenges in Miami. It wasn't all, you know, gravy. Uh, had that great semifinal, I thought, against Simona Halep. Match which, of the year uh, candidate. Yeah, I, to me still... Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought that even though it was straight sets, Serena Maria AO final was, was cr- pretty that's, great. That's a fair debate. I think just the way you measure that, like, in terms of pure, pure quality, yes, yeah, Serena Sharapova gets it, just in terms of the level. But in terms of the drama and the script having lots of twists and turns and leads getting blown and comebacks and failed comebacks and didn't know what was going to happen next, I think Halep, uh, Serena had that part I guess one. so. I mean, I, I, for me, I think a, a mitigating... Uh, factor to the Serena Halep matches it, even though it was obviously close and the scoreline was close and all of the dramas that Ben mentioned, I kind of never really had any doubt that Serena was going to win that match. Whereas weirdly, in Australia, there was a sense at different times like, gosh, Maria's Maria's actually playing pretty good today. Like, you know, this this could happen. And I think that that aspect of it, especially being a Grand Slam final um, and what was at stake and given their Rivalry, non-rivalry, whatever you want to call it, whatever it is, the thing that they have. Always an event, Serena. Maria. Yeah. Uh, so, th- so that still that match still gets the edge for me. But, uh, but yeah, I thought that uh, it was interesting. I got this tweet, um, and I apologize if I can't remember the Twitter handle right now off the top of my head. But uh, I tweeted, you know, Simona Halep said that after that terrible loss to Makarova at the Australian Open, she said that she was never going to not fight again because she basically admitted that she just kind of checked out of that match yeah. for whatever reason 
And um, somebody wrote back and said, you know, like, has anyone ever, like, said something and done it as, like, quickly and as efficiently as, like, Simona Halep just did? And I'm like, it's kind of a good point, given how she fought to win Indian Wells. That was JJ's title. JJ almost had her name on that on that trophy, having served for that match. She fought through it, completely outplayed and dominated by Serena Williams in the um, semifinal in Miami and just hung with it, hung just on, stayed in. Had in the third. I mean, that was, that was impressive work to, to hold her serve as, as many times as she was able to. And, uh, yes, that is the U.S. national anthem. I think you might have heard America the Beautiful before <laughs> that. I think we heard that, too. We're outside the stadium in Charleston. And I totally agree. Simona did that and did really well. I mean, Serena, let's talk about, obviously, she comes in – now, I think there were some questions. You don't ever know with an injury that before the out of a tournament how serious it is. I will say that Miami, as fun stat, ended a streak of three consecutive premier mandatories that Serena had withdrawn from midway through, huh. including uh, Indy Wells, Beijing the year before, and Madrid the year before. So this was the first one she completed in a year. So a uh, little Serena tidbit there. But Serena wins everything these days when she's healthy and playing. She hasn't lost yet this year except for Hotman Cup, which is hard to count, even though I do think she was semi-trying against Radvanska in the, in the final of the Hopman Cup. Uh, yeah, on paper, it doesn't seem like she's had a completely straightforward year by any stretch, but she is undefeated. She is the favorite going into any clay tournament she enters, I think. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's right. I don't think that you can you know, knock anything that, that Serena's done so far this year. I think the eyeball test, you're right, Ben, that she's been vulnerable this year. She's shown more vulnerability and actually this kind of ties in as we talk move to talk about Novak. Yeah. Um, where Novak like he's what he's doing right now is incredible to me simply because yeah, we seen dominant Novak. We saw that in 2011 where he was just blitzing everybody. And what's been impressive here uh, this year is that he isn't necessarily blitzing people. He's been showing his resilience that he really broke through to kind of rediscover when he won Wimbledon, beating Federer in five last year. And ever since then, you know, has he always been like the dominant dude? No, that's okay. But he's almost scarier right now because he's willing himself to win. And I feel like there's a little bit of that with Serena as well as we watch both of them be number ones with a bullet, you know, like unassailable starts of the year. But They've been vulnerable. They've been there for the taking, and it hasn't happened. Djokovic, especially, has had lots of close calls that he escaped. I mean, talk about, it's start with Isner and India Wells. That was a tight, tight second set tiebreak that he got out of. Uh, in Miami, Klezine dropped a set. Dolgopolov, he was down a set and a break and really looked pretty much on his way out of that before. 1-4 down in the second, I think. Exactly, yeah. Set and a big breakdown at 4-1, and then he comes back and rolls that. Uh, against Murray, he drops a set, rolls, comes back. I mean, he has been... Uh, in the end, a bit of inevitable. Not he's never been. He hasn't been somebody who's done that before. He's been somebody who, when under fire, can get knocked out of tournaments. I mean, he, that's not stupid to say. He has lost before, but he has. I mean, you've seen him get usurped at various tournaments where it looked like he would be in control, and this hasn't been the case here. He's been taking care of business. He's won the last five big tournaments, which, if you talk about Paris, Bercy, World Tour Finals, Australian Open, Indian Wells, Miami, that's a huge streak for one guy to do that across that long length of time. And going into the clay, yeah, according to the odds makers now, he is the betting favorite to win the French Open ahead of Rafael Nadal, which is interesting. People will think that, I mean, obviously Nadal's won it nine times, Djokovic zero. It seems like a thing that I can't think there'd be any time in the past when Nadal wouldn't have been favorite at any point. Uh, so it's a big time for Novak, and it's a question of if he can do it in Paris, which is the main question. It's still the one lumpy, hair-about-two-colored jewel missing from his crown. So... He wants it, and it'll be a question if he wants it too bad or if he can manage that or what. Yeah. But right now, he couldn't ask for a better start for the year. He really no, couldn't. No, and, and it's, it's I, you know, I think almost 
I have to say the last few years, Clay has been incredibly interesting. Oh, and yeah. it's been the most interesting segment of the season. Especially outside the French. Yeah. Like the pre-Clay when Rafa hasn't been winning wire to wire. But even at the French. I mean, yeah. the, last year there was no guarantee Rafa was going to no, especially given the lead up from last year. So Rome losing the final Rome yeah. to Djokovic. Yeah. yeah, it would look like it was Djokovic's year. And then also on the women's side, uh, you know, now it's kind of the Maria, Serena, and Halep show on Clay as things turn fish is jumping out of the water like crazy we're standing next to a pond <laughs> leaping fish do you see this fish courtney i do not it's in the far corner of the pond let's see if it leaps again come on fish it's swimming it's swimming leap fish leap no not leaping a watched fish never leaps i know it's gonna leap because you have your back to it now but it's gonna leap as soon as you it's like the that. little uh, wb uh, frog Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello. You don't know what I'm talking about at all? Not really. Really? The frog of, the w- of Warner Brothers? And, like, it's the uh-huh. cartoon yeah, where... Yeah, Warner Brothers frog, yeah. Yeah, so the, the whole cartoon is that when people are l- watching, he just sits there and is like a riveting uh, frog. Okay. But except gotcha. for that one guy, and when in front of that one guy, he'll, like, This dance. was a fish that looked about a foot long that leaped, like, a solid foot in the air out of the water and landed back in the water. It was like a flying fish or something. I thought it was pretty neat. Anyway, back to Novak our flying fish of tennis he has been flying yeah like you said i think i agree with you what you're saying about clay yes with with sharapova being claypova but that's still seeming too good it to be true it still just doesn't seem doesn't, doesn't like we can accept it no yeah, yeah. We, fight, we fight that notion of claypova we don't embrace it serena still being winning on the surface now proving she can but now having only still won one french in the last few years even that's not nothing uh yeah there's a lot of question marks and a lot of who can do it halep is their best surface on clay so the top three are all very much in it to win it uh, beyond that, I don't see anybody else in the top three really being a huge deal on yeah. play this year, honestly, because, I mean, Red Vonska, Wozniacki, Ivanovic has been bad lately. I mean, a bit of a we have no idea. Yeah, we don't know what's up with her. Yeah. Um, she, I think she is scheduled to play Fed Cup. Yeah, she's scheduled to play it, but so, we'll see. Yeah, so we'll see. Um, yeah, play should, be, play should be a lot of fun. Should be. talk briefly about the losers in the finals let's start with carla suarez navarro because carla made the top 10 she had quite a few good wins uh big players she beat back to back uh bradvanska venus pekovic solid win for carla what do you think carla should take out of this and what is carla's role in tennis i was thinking as we approach episode 100 carla was our first ever take a number i believe back in episode one so carla's come a long way because she was not in top 10 when we picked her number so what do you make of Carla now? Is she someone to watch for on clay? Let's put it that way, because she is a clay quarter. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's, it's always really, really tough for me with, with Suarez Navarro. And um, today, actually, I had, I had done my SI power rankings, post, uh, you know, hardcourt power rankings. And it's tough. Carla Suarez Navarro is number four, four in, the yeah. in, the, in the WTA road to Singapore. That is insane. That's insane. So you look at it and you're like, well, I guess, yeah, I mean, you look at the results, they're amazing. Seven of eight quarterfinals are better, uh, you know, making, you know, career results, best start to the season. But when you look at a Carlos Suarez Navarro and you compare, compare her to somebody who's also had a great season, who's also in the top five in the road, a Karolina Pliskova, it's like, but there's, to me, there's still more upside to a Pliskova. Yeah. I can see a Pliskova zoning and taking out a top name. She could beat a Sharapova on a good day easily. She could beat a Halep. She could beat a Serena if she's hitting the ball the way that she's hitting it. Um, and so, and I don't necessarily feel that with Carla. I, totally I feel I, I like think, she's a quarterfinal girl. I think Carla is a, like, for rare light. It's, like, almost worse than for, like, she's somebody who's going to do a pretty, has been doing a great job beating everybody she should beat. I don't see her scaring a big, a big, a big lady 
still has only just one title to her name. Yeah, that came last year. That came last year in uh, Portugal, Oeiras. Yep. And they shut down that tournament, I think, yeah. did they? No, they brought it back? I don't know. I anyway, can't remember. Not a big, not a, not <laughs> yeah. a big tournament. She played, that was a horrible final, not to flashback yeah, to last it was. year. It was against Kuznetsova. It was one of the worst finals I ever played. Yeah, it was anyway. terrible. But, uh, yeah, so it, it's hard to, again, kind of get hyped about it because as much as I love the fact that there's a one-handed backhand in the top ten. So pretty. And Carla's so nice, and the players like her a lot. We'll hear from Andrea Petkovic a little bit later about, um, you know, uh, about her uh, loss to Carla Suarez Navarro and why she was able to kind of get over it so quickly. Uh, spoiler alert, it's because it was Carla, and she, she likes Carla, and, it was, and also she's Petkovic. Yeah. It's cool that way. So, yeah, but it, it, it is hard to get kind of excited about possibly Carlos Suarez Navarro being an impact player in the top ten. It's not, not easy. But one player who has been impactful in the top ten, if not winning titles yet or beating the other guys in the big four, quote-unquote, is Andy Murray, who made it to the final of Miami. His first Masters final in two years uh, since Miami 2013. Gets to the final, takes the second set over Djokovic, then gets bageled. What should Andy, how Andy Murray should feel... What's Andy Murray ad-libs? Andy Murray should feel blank about his Miami performance. Encouraged. Okay. It was a hell of a lot better than his semifinal performance against Novak in uh, Indian Wells. That's for damn sure. Uh, that was a terrible match. He's now played Novak three times already this year. Obviously gone 0-3. Uh, two of those matches ended in bagel sets. <laughs> so there's something going on there with Andy Murray that he should be concerned about why he can't seem to be able to, to fight through both, third and fourth sets. Both Miami finals ended in bagels. They Miami's did. a big bagel city, as we know. They've got some... Great Jewish delicatessens there, Miami Beach. Tremendous stuff. Yes. Yeah. Bagley. Bagley town. A Bagley town. But yeah, no, but I think that he should be encouraged because the way that he did play that was that first set could have gone either way. The second set obviously played really well, took that to force the third. But the way that he played was right. It was the right tactics. He just misfired on the execution on, on just a handful of points that I think really you know, just kept the pressure on him when it should have been a little bit easier for him. Right. Um, and uh, he just, I don't know, he played right. And, and that, again, is, like, more important to me. Like, you're playing the right way. You see the, you know, the, the tactics. And importantly, I mean, on ESPN during the Miami final, uh, Darren Cahill said that he was talking to Boris Becker before the match. And Boris Becker said that he thought that Andy was actually going to take a little bit off his first serve to get more first serves in to protect his second serve so that Novak couldn't attack that because Andy's second serve is obviously a major liability. Cahill and the entire ESPN team rightfully basically eviscerated Boris um, on those tactics because they were like, no, no, no. If you're Andy Murray, you have to go big. You have to get free points. You're not going to beat Novak in the rally. Uh, more often than not, so you can't just spin well, that ball. start neutral on your serve. Yeah, you yeah. can't do it. It's just that's the recipe for disaster. So sure enough, that's what Andy did. He went out there and he fired big, and he had a pretty darn good serving day, um, getting some free points, and uh, you know that kept him kind of in that match. But you know whether it's the physicality or his fitness or, or that seems to me to be what's at issue. You know he needs to kind of figure that out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's speak about something, another ESPN personality and Andy Murray. During the match, I guess Andy Murray was re- complaining to his box loudly, as he is wont to do. Um, and Patrick McEnroe uh, tweeted, Hey, Andy, it might not be your trainer's fault. Hashtag look in the mirror. Several hours later, maybe even over a day later, Andy Murray uh, tweeted at Patrick, uh, Hey, Patrick, hope all is good, mate. Who said it was my trainer's fault? Are you still head of U.S. Tennis? And that tweet has since been delayed, but it was a, speaking of not holding back on the first serve, Andy Murray kind of put everything he had into that one, Mm -hmm. minus the deleting, but 
Yeah. It was a big swing for Mandy. It was. It was. It's nice to see him stand up for himself. Yeah, I think that that's important. And, and, and one thing that was really interesting is that Indian Wells, Andy Murray, went up into the BBC booth to do some commentary along with the BBC guys, Russell Fuller. And uh, and uh, he was. they were asking him, have you thought about maybe one day being a commentator? And he said, well, I don't really have the voice for it. Like, let's be honest. And they're like, okay. But... Andy Murray did say one thing that I do think I could add to the commentary booth is the fact that I would be more understanding of the players and what they're going through out on court. And that, you know, uh, that right now, I'm sure he sits there and he listens to, you know, ESPN broadcast when he's in the States or Sky Sports or BBC and hears some of the things that people say about the players like, oh, he's not trying. Oh, what's wrong with him? Those sorts of things. I'm sure from Andy Murray's perspective, he's like, you have absolutely no idea. And I think that it's kind of odd because this all kind of came from a comment that he made to the box about, yeah, like, I'm done. Uh, good job. And I find it odd that ESPN, like the ESPN folks took that as he was being literally, he was literally telling the trainer, like, good job, dude. You did, dude. You didn't, job, yeah, man. you know, like, and really like when Andy Murray says that his legs are jelly do we literally believe his legs are jelly like you know like why are we taking that at face value it's, it's, he also it's, said it's, afterwards, a, it's a he, weird take he also to, says afterwards that he doesn't know what else he could do physically in yeah. terms of training I mean he's an incredibly incredibly hard worker in terms of physiques on tour there's nobody better than right. Andy Murray on that front yeah I, I think that's fair and I do think other players are that too Andy Roddick went on a similar sort of tear he was a guest on ESPN talking about how it's so easy for uh Actually, it was mostly directed at Patrick's brother, John, I think, about how easy it is for people to be critical in the booth and be more charitable. So it's not the first, Andy Murray is not the first person to say something He's not like the that. first Andy to say it. No, it's a kind of an Andy refrain. <laughs> uh, maybe Andy Petkovich will say it, which is impressed later, you never know. Or Andy Lovachkova. Um, probably not. Uh, yeah, we'll see. But I think it was an interesting moment, obviously a bit of a low blow. We should mention that Martin Blackman has been named the new general manager of USDA player development, so we'll be interested to hear how that shakes out for him. It's interesting transition time for U.S. tennis. Uh, expectations are both high and low, so we'll see. <laughs> they run the range. I think they do run the range. Yeah. So they're hopeful expectations with a dose of reality and cynicism. There, that's all we ever want in life. Yeah. All we ever wanted in life from the Charleston Alexis Hour, I think we got. Players were in a really good mood, actually there. Uh, we, all the top eight rolled through in various times, um, held at the nearby Daniel Island Country Club. Daniel Island Club. Uh, so Courtney has compiled for us together in her Spinderella role for this episode uh, a nice montage of, of clips you're going to hear from the players. So Courtney, why don't you talk us through what the people are going to hear for from us. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was a fun all-access hour because, yeah, everybody was just in a good mood and it was a very relaxed atmosphere. It was Obviously, Andrea Petkovic, Eugenie Bouchard, Zara Arani, uh, Madison Keys, Yelena Yankovic, uh, just a bunch of just uh, chatty folk rolling on through. But uh, yeah, so I've compiled a few clips of just some funny anecdotes and some interesting quotes from the players. Uh, first up, you'll hear from the defending champion and uh, NCR spirit animal in many <laughs> ways, Andrea Petkovic, uh, who addressed the media. Uh, and talked a little bit about, you know, just uh, what it's like to come back here with her face on the side of a stadium. Uh, she is uh, defending here. And, uh, yeah, just her thoughts on also the um, post-loss hug that she gave to Carlos Suarez Navarro at the net in Miami, which has been a, a picture that's been retweeted, and, and Carlos Suarez Navarro tweeted it as well. And uh, so she addresses that. She talks about, yeah, why in that moment she felt the need to 
mentally slap herself in the face. I'm ready if you are. So this, this seems like your show this year. You're like front, yeah, you're like front page of the website. You're like all over uh, the okay. place being big champion. Yeah. Carolina girl and everything. <laughs> from the, from the right. highway, you're, you're on the stage. That's how it's always supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> I asked my hometown to do the same thing, but they were like, nah. <laughs> Uh, no, yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy. I I um, I was a defending champion in Batka Stein once, but um, and that was actually kind of a funny story because I won the tournament and my parents were supposed to go to the vacation in Serbia and they took my trophy with them and I didn't know it was the first title I've won and I didn't know they always do a trophy photograph session, right? Mm -hmm. In front of a waterfall in Batka Stein, there's a really nice waterfall and so. Um, they were like, okay, so uh, let's have a trophy session. I'm like, my trophy is gone. <laughs> and luckily, luckily, I have uh, I played finals and doubles. But the singles trophy was like this, and the finals trophy was like this. And so I took a little a photo with the little trophy. And the next year I came there, there was a huge photograph of me staying there. I was like larger than life with a little trophy. <laughs> <laughs> There is actually, I, I do a lot of meditation I, um, I, because I'm trying, as, as strange as it sounds, as an athlete, you actually have to be very naive and believe that everything will be good in the end. Because the minute you don't, it won't. And that's the problem with us athletes. If you're like, I am a natural doubter and I'm thinking about a lot of things and I'm <coughs> definitely not naive. And, um, and so I know things can go wrong. And I've been through that experience that things do go wrong. Um, so what I try to do in my meditations, I just try to push that naivete into myself and sort of try to make myself believe that everything is good and um, sort of just try to push it down into my subconscious that even when these doubts come that I have uh, sort of a base that I've worked up for myself in the subconscious that maybe they will go well, you know, and uh, hopefully they will go well and because that belief is necessary in order to win titles and the minute, I, because as I said in 2011 when I was top 10 uh, in the world, I never won a big title, I always played really well up until a certain point and then I lost to the top players uh, or even not to top players, I just wasn't able to win the big titles and I think it was a it was a mental state of mind definitely. Do you have goals for this year in terms of moving up closer? I mean you've been top 10, like right. Singapore or something in goals? I, I would really like to be in Singapore last year and that's definitely in the back of my mind but I, um, I really got to know myself throughout my career as a, as a professional and I know when I want something really bad that I um, normally get into a full body cramp so <laughs> so I'm trying not to focus on that I just have it in the back of my mind that especially now with the way the season started that I definitely have a have a shot at, at Singapore and that's definitely in the back of my mind I won't deny it but um, as I said I always have problems with setting like goals that I really want to achieve so I'm trying to leave it in the back of my mind. <laughs> Well, I would really like to see the footage because I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> and I think because the the way I felt it was, I um, I missed the shots and I was so disappointed mm -hmm. with myself. And I looked down and I really, I was about to cry from anger, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, geez, it's Carla, you know? And she just, and I saw her celebrating and it wasn't like I felt bad. I was like, it's one of her biggest moments in her life. And I sort of slapped myself mentally in the face and I was like, 
pull yourself together, Andrea, yeah. and you know, just but appreciate that somebody else also. But you have a very high graciousness record anyway across the board. Well, I try, you know, it's just because I always try to put myself in other perspectives as, as well, at least a little bit. And I know um, that for Carla it was a huge moment, and I, I really like her, and I think she deserves all the best that comes her way, and she's so talented. And so I just really tried to be happy for, for her in that moment, and I was able to do that in that moment. And also afterwards, when I saw her being so happy in her on her tweets, it was easier for me to take that long. Wouldn't it be funny if this year, like, Pekovic, Suarez Navarro, Pliskova, let's say, all, all qualify for Singapore, and instead they're all photographed hugging backstage <laughs> instead of sitting there in a row not communicating? What if this is just the friendly wave that's coming through now? It could be. It could we'll be. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if, if, the, if nice girls finish first. Or at least in the top eight. <laughs> yeah, no, in the top eight. That is, that is a revision to, uh, to that, uh, that adage. Um, and uh, after Pekovic, you'll be hearing from Eugenie Bouchard, who comes in a bit slumpy. And she was very candid about that, um, talking about just her struggles. But um, she was in a much better mood than I expected. Yeah, I she mean, was. After the losses she's taken, bad losses we talked about last week on the show, to Serenko and Tatiana Malik Maria back to back. Yeah, she was in a much more upbeat, much more positive mood than I thought. She got a wild card here. She's feeling pretty happy about life. is a mental <laughs> a mental game um, that is interesting I mean I mean I'm the t I'm the type of person who, who loves the big stages and I feel like I, I can rise to the occasion and play well under pressure um, but that doesn't mean you know I see lesser tournaments as lesser tournaments so um, yeah I mean but maybe I don't, I, I don't know what it could be maybe you think you do well and then you relax I know that's not in my case, but I mean, there are, there's definitely pressure getting used to the new kind of environment, of course, as soon as you do well in, in, a, in a slam, you know, suddenly there are so many more eyes on you and people expect you to win every match after that and that's just not going to happen. So um, I think dealing with the pressure is probably the biggest factor. Uh, we also talked to uh, Sarah Arani, who was in a very chatty mood, actually. An interesting thing that we learned about Sarah Arani, which she will tell you herself, she is a rankings geek. She loves it. She loves the math. She loves figuring it out. And she got that was the most excited she got at the roundtable, was talking about the rankings. Uh, and you'll also hear Sarah Arani discuss the relationship that the Italian players have with the Italian media, uh, which I, I kind of asked her about. Oft contentious. Oft we can contentious. tell from the, the outside, even. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think we, we had uh, many years playing both single and double was very tough physically and mentally so uh, we would like to try to this kind of thing. I mean, it's a new thing. I've never been playing only single but for the moment I want to try and see how it goes like this. Have you, um, are you, so you're just not going to play doubles at no. all? That's it? No, I mean, well, for, for the now, moment, for no. Now, for the moment, I want yeah. to see how it is and uh, it's a new thing. I repeat, I've never played only single so... 
for the moment I want to see. Maybe I change my mind and I say, no, I have to play double, but for the moment I want to try like this. Do you know what the reaction was back in Italy about the news? It seemed like... Well, when we say a lot of fun was uh, writing a really good uh, things for us. I mean, it was a surprise to see how many people uh, love us there. So it's, it was really nice. Was it a mutual decision? Because obviously when something like this happens, there's a lot of speculation. What? Did you both decide at yes, the same time? Yes, yes. So no, no big fight no, or anything? No, no, yeah, no, no. drama. <laughs> no drama. No drama. Yeah, drama. come on, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have a related question. Is, um, uh, would you uh, possibly continue to play in Fed Cup again? Well, if, if the captain decides to put us okay, to play, right. yes. I mean, we are ready to play. It's not, it's not a problem that. I mean, uh, we are uh, the you captain. Will decide what to do and what not to do. I'm sure that would. Make I was talking to Fabio a few weeks ago. <laughs> Don't worry, this discussion's not going to be weird. Uh, but uh, he was talking a little bit about his relationship with the Italian media, the press, yeah. the tennis press and things like it's that. Tough. It's, it's tough. tough. Yeah. Yes. So um, for those of us who don't speak Italian, we can't, we don't know what's going on during okay. like press conferences and things like that. But yeah. for you, how have you kind of found dealing with, with your, like with the Italian press that they've been, do you feel like it's been fair? Do you feel like it's, you know, it's not, it's well? not an easy thing. I mean, uh, what can you say? You have to watch out what everything you say. Uh, sometimes they can change. I have a bad experience with the, uh, that maybe you say something and they s they've read another thing. So sometimes you feel like you don't have the power to, to, to talk. Or so you have to to be careful, had also some uh, bad things with them. But uh, it's like that. What you have to yeah. do, you cannot change it. Uh, you try to do your best. You are working every day to play tennis, to do everything that you have on court. So this is uh, really important. I hope that the persons see that I hope to be a good example for the young kids or for the people so this is the thing that I want uh, and then if there are person that wants to, to to write what they want to to want money or to take money it's not I cannot do nothing it's their problem I just want to try to focus on my life on what is good and what is not good <laughs> where do you like this sounds like a funny question but where do you feel how do you feel that pressure is it because you read it in the newspaper people no for me i think is more for the points i mean that you okay. see maybe if you lose the point you go on the ranking more high so i think it's more for that because i'm very competitive so it's not it's more about that can than not about other things sometimes maybe it's also what the people can start to say and uh, making you like thinking too much but uh, i try to stay out of that and try to think of what i have to do when it, when it comes to the points, do you get like an email? How do you keep track of your points? Do you do it? Like what? You get it, how do you uh, calculate your points? Do you do, do you ah. send you an email every week? No, no, I'm I'm you very good on that. Yeah? I can tell you, you know. the ranking. All <laughs> how many points do you have to spend this week? <laughs> do you know? Well, they changed from last year okay. because last That's year was oh, one the day. Day. Oh, the so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I love I love tennis and I love the ranking. I love to watch ranking to see the person who is. Uh, I, love, I like That's that. So. Caroline Garcia, who isn't always uh, this is the first all new access all hour. Access, yeah, yeah, new new to a premier level all access uh, hour, uh, and she was out. she was great and um, hope. 
I clipped it to hopefully give you some sense of Caroline Garcia's personality because she was actually very, very funny talking about her father as her coach, um, which cracked up the entire table and also uh, getting a little uh, snarky about questions about Amelie Moresmo, which was uh, which was pretty great. Um, yeah, like in the previous year, I was able to play good one week and then the week after we was just not good or terrible. So it was just maybe more constant, uh, every day the same now, mm -hmm. and uh, I work every day hard to be better on court, so maybe it's also why I play better every day on tournament, so it's, it's good for me, and um, yeah, some two final in a row was, was good and quite inexpected because it was uh, a tough schedule before Acapulco, so I was just happy to be in final, and then again in Monterrey, uh, beating in Anna, it was very good for me. How has your Fed Cup experience helped you? Because that was unbelievable. Yeah. That had <laughs> to, I was thinking that had to have, have we remember it. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was just like a perfect weekend and I was coming from Bogota, I was so confident, so happy. I was I was just playing almost for fun, just like playing and I was it was just perfect match and to do for first first time like this and uh, was able to be back on group one and won three matches so it was a lot of confidence for me and uh, that proved I can do it and so after I did good in Madrid as well so um, I know my game is ready to be the best one but you have to be ready every day and keep going and uh, sometimes it's difficult you know you have bad day or difficult day but you have to keep going and believe in yourself and just um, try to, trying to do a better next next day. Is it difficult for you to believe in yourself? Um, sometimes it's difficult because you can be able to play very good a day and the second day just be terrible. But you have, you have to try to win even if you are playing bad, if it's not nice to watch, if just putting ball, ball, the back, ball back that's I can't do but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just trying to win anyway to be able to play next day and maybe you can win the tournament like this you're still coached by your father yeah yeah so he, has he been your coach your entire life um, I don't know if when he was young he was my coach but he have been uh, next to me like since the beginning so he know me like anyone else so I'm just happy to have my both parents with me with the most I can, most time I can, and um, yeah, they are sometimes difficult with me to say you did don't you didn't do well, but after I know uh, I can improve from that. So and after I have better day after teaching. What does he say the most to you as a coach? Oh, it's always the same thing. Science. I'm little a little girl, you know, like it's always the same. <laughs> Keep focused, Caroline. <laughs> Don't think to anything else. Just <laughs> do your job. <laughs> your answers change, right, as you get older. Right? Yeah. What do you tell them? What do you tell them? Well, before when I was very young, I said, okay, okay. And then I said, no. <laughs> it was a bad period, you know, when you're not listening, it's not good. And then uh, we'll close it out with some comments from Madison Keys, who uh, obviously had a, a great hardcore season with respect to what happened in Australia. Really didn't do great um, in India Wells in Miami, but the losses on paper are not really all that bad. Losing to Sloane Stevens, who we know is playing much better tennis these days, losing that tough one to Yelena Yankovic in India Wells. So she talks about how it's tough to say goodbye to the hard courts, um, but she's, she's trying to gear herself up 
to love clay. So uh, the, enjoy all of that. Yeah, have fun with it. Are you frustrated that it's clay season and there's no more hard courts until the summer, or is it like, all right, I'm gonna see how this goes? I mean, I know Honestly, we talked about your after Miami. I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> clay. <laughs> hey. Um, but no, I'm I'm learning to love it more and more. And I mean, like Madrid and Roland Garros clay courts are actually really fast. So it's more, it's just like you're sliding, you know? So it's not that different. It's the footwork issue. Yeah, it's more just, you have to learn how to move and slide and I'm doing that better. So it's really not something that is huge for me that I'm like, oh my God, it's clay. But I mean, will I be happy when I get to go on grass? Of course. <laughs> there are big hitters who've done well. Though. I mean, like, even like an Ivanovich, who's pretty much a power yeah. player, more or less. She's, she used to be her best servers by far. Petra's yeah. won, won Madrid. Right. Lindsay made semis of French yeah, twice. Yeah, I know. I it's like, for some reason, I'm like, oh my god, only clay quarters can win. Is it like, a, is it like this weird, um, like, unsubstantiated myth that kind of exists within American tennis that, like, that well, we can't play on we clay? On oh, we're going to suck on clay. Let's just bag Let's just it and get some grass. I mean, Roddick used to do that. Yeah. You know? No, it's, I mean, it's something, it's not, you don't have to change your game to play on clay. I mean, you have to play smarter. You have to play a little bit more patient, which, that's me, patient. Um, but, I mean, it's not like it's rocket science all of a sudden. I mean, if you just play your game and you tweak little things here and there, it's not like it's a totally different game. Um, so, after hearing from the players, now you're going to hear from us for quite a while. Uh, it's, I guess it's what usually the prescription is on this show, which uh, hopefully you guys... You've kind of tuned in. You, that's kinda, what you've signed up for. I guess so. So you guys know what you're getting into. Uh, we talked to a communications class, a couple classes, today at the College of Charleston this morning. We talked about a bunch of different stuff that relates to our jobs, about life's in tennis and being a journalist. The fish just jumped again. Courtney didn't see it again. And, <laughs> and what it's like being us and a bunch of questions we got from the students. So we're going to include all that. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoy it. Started doing it wasn't really was slowly getting noticed writing about stories that were sort of below the radar for a lot of the main people um, and eventually just sort of like Courtney sort of started paying my own way to get places um, so I'd go to tournaments I live in Washington DC so I'd go to the tournament uh, here once went to Cincinnati went to other things that were within driving distance and eventually got to know people who were the main beat writers for big places like Sports Illustrated New York Times and eventually um, I was at Cincinnati one year, and the New York Times writer who was there really liked me because I asked sort of weird questions that no one else was paying attention to. I asked, like, Serena Williams had tweeted um, lyrics from the Britney Spears song Lucky the night before she came into press. Like, you know, she's so lucky. She's a star. She cried, cried, cried in her lonely heart. And I asked her if she, you know, identified with Lucky's plight of being a, a star but feeling, you know, sad on the inside. And, Gave some long answer about various Britney Spears songs she related to, and that wound up being in like everybody's stories, and no one else was as dumb as I was to ask that question. But it wound it still up going happens. well. Ben, ben will ask. No, I do. It, no, it's great. He asks a bunch of off-the-wall questions just because he has the guts to do it. And you'll see like the reporters in the room kind of slowly pull one of these, like yeah. who's this kid asking this question? And uh, but the so they it, all end up in the stories. Yeah, because much. no one's you know it's not about forehands and backhands. It's actually answers that get to the player's personality, which is so necessary in tennis, right? Everybody wants it's it's a character-driven sport, 
within tennis, you hear all of these stories like from the behind the scenes. Agents talk, parents talk, players will talk. The lower ranked players are the best because they don't care. They like no one ever writes about them, so they just shoot their mouths off about like, yeah, she sucks. Oh, he's a jerk. Like da 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 da. They're great. They're great sources for information, but um, no one writes about it because you can't get the on-the-record confirmation of it. You put them in front of a mic, and they just, well, you know, it is what it is. Tomorrow's a new day. Next week will be fine. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Oh, like, have you ever counted they, the number of cliches you've gotten in a press conference? There are certain players where it's just like bingo. It's like, you should is, just make, is what it is, is, is a big one. That's tennis. <laughs> right. That's not an answer, like, honestly. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, it's just a tough day, but, you know, that's tennis. It's like, okay, that's life, but that's, that's not particular to you. Um, yeah, so it's hard. I think that sometimes the players, I think, you know, you see it with the NBA a little bit with all those quotes from, from like Durant and all this stuff about, oh, you media, like you reporters don't know anything. Like, and it, within tennis, it's not like the players don't think that. They just won't say that. They would never say it to your face because somehow it just doesn't get the money, you know? No. Yeah. Do you think that with social media having uh, the fans being able to critique them 24 7 is like kind of like almost feeling them towards that direction of, one day somebody's gonna shoot off and it's just gonna like feel like feel a huge fire of maybe athletes that do that. Well, they have their own microphone now, so if some player wants to shoot off, they don't need to wait for us to come in front of them. They can just pull out their phone and tweet it. So that makes them yeah. have a, a easier trigger finger, I guess, for going off if they ever want to. But I think also that makes them much more reluctant because of the social media 24-hour news cycle stuff. If they say anything remotely controversial about another player, for example, then all that players' fans will like start harassing them on Twitter relentlessly for whoever knows how long. And it makes them much more guarded. So I think overall, I think people are a lot more guarded with social media than they were in the 90s, let's say, when there was, they knew that most things they said wouldn't get picked up, or at least they could say it and wouldn't blow up into some sound bite that went viral. Because they have like, a, like so Twitter gives them like a speaker in their face, right? That's mm -hmm. like just blasting, just noise at them at all times. And to players, I think what they see is like, all fans are great. We love fans. Fans are awesome. And then any negative stuff that they get, they somehow take it out on the media. Like they, they're like so like when you could then go talk to them, it's like yeah, well, all of a sudden they they're talking in this terminology of like kind of like haters. It's like well, my critics say that I'm like, who are your critics? Like random people on Twitter? Why are you letting that bother you? Like you know, but somehow they blow it up into this thing. Well, the media says it's like not everybody who tweets you like is from the media. But it was definitely hard in the in, in the beginning. I definitely took a few missteps in some of the early tweets where I'd get like call from an editor and be like, "Yeah, no, you can't. You can't crack, you can't crack that joke, dude." And I was like, "What? Okay, sorry." Do you remember any specific ones? It was yeah because um, it was during because I took over uh, the U.S. Open 2011, and that was the year that New York got hit by. That's not a very big tournament. Yeah, no, it's tiny. It's tiny, but it got hit by was it Sandy? No, it was, was it um, 2011. Irene? Irene. Yeah, Hurricane Irene, maybe. Yeah. So, um, and there was all this concern, right? We were out in Flushing Meadows, and the weather was crazy, and no. So basically, they had shut down the site, and we were all back in Midtown, and waiting for this, bracing ourselves for this massive storm. And it kind of didn't really hit Midtown. Like it was really rainy, but it wasn't the catastrophic thing that the media uh, built it up to be. So I think I. We did something uh, because I think maybe at the time Victoria Azarenka had a bit of a reputation of being like kind of overly hyped and not delivering on, on some of her results. <laughs> and so I made a comment like, 
much like Victoria Azarenka, Hurricane Irene, like, you know, like came and went without much impact or something. And the critique, and the, actually the, the email from my editor, and it was a good learning, uh, good lesson, was not like don't rip on Azarenka. That wasn't the point at all. Um, but that, you know, Irene did actually hit the Eastern Seaboard in very meaningful ways. And so that's, the, well, that's why. Might be insensitive. Exactly. It's insensitive on that. And I was like, you're so right. Like, I never thought about that. And so it wasn't a note about the joke being inappropriate from a player relations standpoint or being immature. It was like, yeah, no, there are people who are homeless I right now. You know, and it's like, <laughs> fair enough. Point taken. Like, my bad. I'll take that down. <laughs> so, but, uh, but that was the only big one. The rest of them, they, they, they've pretty much been fine. And for my own Twitter, too, I tweet like results and stuff and tried to build up my own brand, even though it's a gross word, um, in terms of getting people to follow you and have people, you know, come to your Twitter for name recognition, sure, and having people come to you for tennis news and information, opinion, whatever, making yourself synonymous with tennis. So tweeting more helps that, I guess. Yeah. And so, and I didn't tweet for, I was driving down here on Sunday and I didn't tweet at all about the men's final in Miami. People told me this, it's like, why are you tweeting about this? You're clearly biased against... <laughs> Djokovic, you won, and you're just unhappy that he's winning. And so I was like, no, I was just in the car. <laughs> and it was Easter. They're texting. They're, yeah. they're tweeting. They're tweeting. Right. So, yeah. uh, what kind of tips would you guys give for like starting blogs and podcasts? Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, well, okay. So I think the biggest thing for both is to don't ape what other people do. So in other words, like add something to the conversation. Try and do something different. Find what is a gap that you see in the coverage or whether it's sports or anything and that you specifically want to fill, right? Like you're adding a voice that isn't being heard. Um, and that would apply to both. I think like for me, when I started my blog, which was called 40 Deuce, it was an irreverent, super snarky, um, <laughs> F-bombs everywhere, like inappropriate uh, way of discussing the players and the sport, but with, truth behind it right so it was it was like one of my friends described it as like the daily show of tennis right it was mm -hmm. like you take the cracks but there's truth in what you're saying right um but you make it entertaining so that's what i did because tennis was such a staid sport it's so like old school and it's a lot of you know people Gentile. still wear suits yeah. in the press room i'm like really um it's like 120 degrees out <laughs> like <laughs> some shorts and some flip-flops and go out there um yeah, so I wanted to kind of do a take on that of, right, like let's take this sport that everyone treats with white gloves and let's like talk about it in a totally inappropriate way. And really was more of a comedy vehicle than a sports writing vehicle in a lot of ways. So that's what I, tr I wanted to add because that wasn't something that existed at the time. Um, with, when we did the pod, when we started the podcast, there weren't any tennis podcasts really out there. There was maybe two or, two or three and no one really listened. And they were really irregular. Really irregular and stuff. So we kind of wanted to do, let's do a weekly thing of this is how two people who know tennis would talk about tennis if we were at a bar. Like we're just friends and it's just chatty. It's like, what do you think about this? And what do you think about, ah, oh, you're wrong. Like, you know, and kind of bring a little bit more debate and discussion around the sport because it didn't exist. So I think that's kind of the big thing. I think sometimes I see a lot of blogs or podcasts nowadays that the, it's not that the writer's not good or the podcaster isn't good. Like, Clearly the effort's there, they're working hard, but they're not adding anything to the conversation. And right now there's so much content that if you don't give me a reason to specifically click and spend the time to read or listen to the thing that you put out, I'm 
just not going to do it because there's just so many, there's so much information out there, and I only have so many hours in the day. So that that's what I would I say. It could be some, I think two things on that vlog thing first is just write a lot. Just like even if you're not really in the mood, just sort of keep it going. It's easy when you're just doing it by yourself for it to die and to peter out. And to build any sort of following, you just you know, quantity sort of keeps it keeps itself going. The more you build, the more readers 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 you will get. The more motivated you'll be to do it more. And so that just helps even just to make yourself a rule like I'll do three posts a week or one a day if it's a lot or you know whatever that winds up being. Do a lot, and the other thing is just like you said, sort of write something that you can add something to. Like if for tennis, it's like don't write a post if you're starting out like about why Roger Federer is the greatest player of all time. It's been written a thousand times, and odds are, and odds are you're not you're not going to add anything new. But if you can add about some player who's ranked like 200th, who did something interesting in a tournament maybe no one was watching, you can add something different, or some controversy happened, or people have done things about lower level match fixing and other more nefarious things that other people aren't paying attention to, then it can sort of rise up and you can become the expert or the voice on that smaller niche. And that'll get you noticed and it'll get picked up by bigger people and it's a good way to do it. So yeah, so just basically, yeah, if you're gonna write, I don't know, for whatever, write more about an indie band than Taylor Swift or whatever, and you'll do better. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so like how many stories do y'all write weekly and like how many hours do like, y'all put in like in a day? Like, how much time does it take? <laughs> hours? It's very. We're very, I mean, we have very different jobs. Yeah. I, that should be first, like, kind of like, so Ben's experience is going to be different than mine because he's more of, like, a reporter. Like, so he's reporting stories, and I'm kind of more of a blogger, effectively, where I kind of help. I do a little bit, probably a little bit more service journalism, which is effectively, I kind of collect everything that's being done about tennis that's happened in tennis, and I package it so that if you, <clears throat> you want to know what happened that day in tennis or that week, go to si.com, go to the tennis page, and you can find everything, right? But I don't really break news. I'm not like out there running around trying to like, you know, break the doping story for, or something like that. Like that's just not where I spend my energy. So for me, like I pretty much do three posts a day for si.com. Um, and, uh, but in terms of time that I spend, I mean, it's really probably something like 16 to 18 hours because it's there's matches going on like all the time, right? So we have Family Circle Cup for this week. This week, for instance, you have well, this week's probably not a good example, but because it's kind of a, a slight dead week except for Charleston. So you have the you have Charleston. There's a tournament in Poland, also in Katowice, Poland, where uh, a top 10 player is playing and who's slumping. So you kind of have to like pay attention to what's going on over there to see what happens with her. Um, you also have a men's clay court event in Houston, and you also have a men's clay court event in Morocco. So these are the time zones that you're monitoring kind of all the time. And then even last night, I went to bed, and uh, I woke up this morning, and the first thing I do is I roll over, grab my phone, check Twitter. That's like the first thing that you do when you wake up, and then sometimes you go back to sleep. But um, I checked on Twitter, and somebody had shot me a tweet saying like, while you were sleeping, and it was Andy Murray taking a shot at uh, Patrick McEnroe for a tweet McEnroe sent during the Miami Open final, which Murray lost. And, uh, and then Murray quickly deleted the tweet, which I was like, dang, don't delete it. Like, you, you finally threw a punch. Like, you know, like, this is, we need this. Um, but yeah, because he's, he's in England, so his operating hours are different than mine. So, you know, like, you're just kind of constantly 
there's a lot of FOMO in tennis. There's a lot of fear of missing out. You know, like you're just constantly like, if dinner, you're like, what if something's happening right now? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Now, being freelance is tough because there's a lot of time management about what we do. When we're on site. We should be writing. We should be watching a match, whatever. And being freelance, especially, you can always be working. Yeah. You could always. There's no like the opposite of nine to five completely. And you could, I could always be, and I'm pretty nocturnal, so I occasionally write stories at like 1 a.m. until like 5 and then fall asleep for a few hours and wake up and email somebody, make an interview with somebody who's in Asia or whatever. And yeah, you just switch it on and off. And so you, I can go days doing nothing if I'm just tired or not in the mood and then I just don't get paid for those few days. Or <laughs> I can go on like a burst of doing like five stories in a week. And it just depends. So that makes it, that's good and bad. Yeah, that's hustle. Barely. No, we have like you didn't do any internships. I did like one she briefly. Yeah, for, I was like, I seven year internship. I did one life. briefly for a politics blog, like one summer between uh, semesters of college, and that, that didn't really lead to anything particularly. And that's we were pretty much self-taught as far as the journalism side goes of things, which is good and bad. I mean, it's not that hard, but it also shows I guess if you guys are taking more journalism type classes or communications classes you're or whatever, ahead of us. In the you're, he you're ahead of us, but at the same time, it's not hard for people to catch up. On, the, on their own way too. So, good yeah. or bad. There's a lot of ways into journalism. People, lawyer, former lawyers, it's not an uncommon story. People who just like doing it and were good writers. So. And I think like yeah. with the lawyer thing, for me, like where I see that it does help is like uh, interviews. I think that I do interviews in a completely in a slightly different way than a lot of people in the room because I've done depositions. I know how to get information from people. I can read a room pretty quickly. I can read a player's mood really quickly. I can figure out, okay, how do I get you from point A to point B? How, how do I lead you there? Because I know that you'll talk about it if I can get you there. Um, I like that challenge. That, that's very similar to what I did as a lawyer for a lot of time. Um, and then also being, I, I mean, I'm pretty analytical um, with respect to kind of my hot takes, which means that my hot takes are not hot. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't pop off like crazy and be like, oh, this player's career is absolutely over. I'm like, no, like, you know, let's, let's crunch the numbers. Let's look at it. Let's be a little bit more reasonable. Um, and some people value that. Honestly, currently in the, today's sports market, that's not valued. What's valued is hot taking. It's what you see on ESPN's first take and, you know, more and more like, you know, ble bleach. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just yelling things at each other as opposed to actual discussion or debate, right? Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I let things kind of incubate probably a little bit more. But yep, no internship. Yeah. Of course, really for both of you, but as you were mentioning, starting with SI, and this kind of came up in my last class, but did you, now that you're still, you still have your personal 40 Juice Twit account, um, you don't have your personal blog. Right. I do actually. I relaunched it uh, in January. Oh, okay. uh, it's it's pretty intermittent, and it's it's not just <laughs> it's not just tennis. Um, but and the reason why so when I went up to SI, I didn't shut down for you. I just I didn't you really didn't know time. what was going to happen. Yeah, I just didn't have time. And to SI's credit, anything that I pitched, they wanted it. So it wasn't even like I I figured you when I got into it. it. <laughs> exactly. I was like, well, I said everything that I have to say, and that's it. And SI will take it. And so. There was nothing for me to post on the old 40 Deuce, and I just kind of let it drift off. And so when I relaunched it in January or in December last year, um, it's just more of like a personal blog. It's like my space on the net. It tells you what I do, links to all the work that I do, yeah. and then also is like, I don't know, 
there's posts about tennis, there's posts about music, there's posts about movies, and there's lemoncello recipes. Like, it's just like whatever I feel like writing. And I do enjoy that just because, it, again, it's the freedom mm -hmm. that the original 40 Deuce blog had where there were no rules. I could just write about whatever and kind of play with, play with things. So, like, did you change your Twitter, like your tweets after you started working? Even mm -hmm. though you still have your own personal, yeah. like still 40 Deuce tweets, did you sort of change your voice at all because you're still, because now you are linked and represent yeah. SI.com even though you're not right. tweeting as them when you're tweeting as for sure yeah everybody has that little disclaimer on their twitter right like these are my own opinions as though your company is not going to fire you if you write something completely ridiculous and, and inappropriate um yeah uh, and that was one of the big challenges i think because for me um i was kind of the i was the indie kid i was like the tennis hipster kid who paid attention like I didn't want to write about Roger Federer. I didn't want to write about Serena Williams or Maria Sharapova. I wanted to focus on these like lesser known players who were crazy talented and you know, like it's the same thing. Like I wanted to be in the tiny venues with, you know, some garage band as opposed to like, you know, <laughs> Madison Square Garden with U2. Like that didn't interest me at all. So that was my voice. And so in that way, when you have a smaller, you guys will probably experience this over time. Like when you have a smaller like Twitter following, let's say, you feel, let's say it just starts out as just your friends. You obviously feel like you have tons of freedom to tweet about whatever you want and say all these things because you feel like you're joking with your friends. As that Twitter following grows and your platform grows, you kind of realize there are certain jokes that like maybe you make with your friends in the privacy of your own home, but you can't actually put that on social media because nobody knows the context of you making that joke or that like, you know, like, I mean, yeah, there's just, you guys all know, there are certain jokes you make in the privacy of your own home that like are perfectly fine, but you can't make them publicly. So when I took the SI job, I think the biggest thing for them was just like, the, there was two things, stop cursing so much. I was like, fine. <laughs> um, so I kind of, I, I didn't, I was like, it's fine, okay, well. Um, so I stopped cursing as much on my private Did they actually tell you that? They said, stop they did. They're like, stop you, cursing you need to much. curse. Stop. <laughs> like, they're like, it's fine if you do, but just like not as often as you do. Um, and like, just like, it's like, you know, sexual innuendo jokes, like all that. They're like, no, you gotta, you know, it's not necessary. I'm like, fair enough. Do a lot of people, do you think a lot of followers recognize you as, you know, when, when, like they see this SI.com tweet, even if they're not always yours, but people know they can, that's I think you can hear, yeah, yeah, you can hear probably my voice. I mean, like every writer has a fingerprint. Mm -hmm. Like you can tell, like, I know that with my writing, it does tend to be a bit lyric, like uh, musical. Like I, I, when I talk about playing with language, I like I like how sentences roll and and the rhythms of a paragraph. I hear that I say that all. Time. Yeah, like it, there's there's certain beats, and so for me, like I would play with language in terms of making up new words. You know, a three syllable <laughs> word, shortening it into a two because I needed a two beat. I didn't want the three. It didn't sound right in my ear. Or like sometimes you need the big punch of of an f bomb. And that just, that punches it up and that gives you like the impact. Like that, I liked playing with language. That's what I did a lot. So I think that you can still hear it a little bit when I write some of my SI stuff or tweet from the SI account, you can tell it's me. Um, but yeah, so the one was like stop cursing. And the other was also don't take the shot unless you have the shot. Like you can't just go and pop off and say, I hate this guy. He sucks. He's like, his, ter his forehand's terrible. And just like leave it at that. Like you can say that. But then we're gonna need three but or four paragraphs. Right. No, no, you can say <laughs> that, but then I need three or four paragraphs where you show me the logic and the analysis as to how you get there. If this player is terrible, 
fine, we're happy to report that. Like SI is not like this, it's a place of like hard hitting journalism historically. Like they're not scared to, to throw some punches, but it has to be well reasoned. That's why they're SI. That's why they're Sports Illustrated is because they, their stories generally, they have a history of being well reported. Which so, is different from a lot of bloggers, just yeah. individual bloggers. Exactly. And, and I notice a lot like radio talk show yes. people, they just, they're it's, terrible. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about it in the last class. Like right now, sports, not journalism, but sports media yeah. is a hot take culture. Everybody's expected to come up with some like crazy opinion. Like, you know, like if you go to Bleacher Report, you'll have the two competing blog posts of like 17 reasons via a slideshow why Roger Federer is the greatest player of all time. And then like 17 reasons why Roger Federer is like the crappiest human being to ever walk the planet. And it's like the same, it, it, you just have to stake posts on the extremes. And so with Sports Illustrated, they were like, you can't do that. If you wanna make the extreme argument, you can make it, but you actually, it better be right. Or you can go you know? work for Bleacher Report and do your slides. Exactly, that's possible too. So, so that was the thing. So that applied to Twitter as well. I think that pre-SI, I was probably like a little bit more loose with my tongue in terms of like, oh, I hate this guy, he's the worst. And a lot of it was for comedic effect. Because like you create villains in order to kind of craft this story of like good versus evil. Like, you know, like I, I really played with a lot of kind of all that and added that creativity to things. I wasn't a journalist. And I've never said that. I've never said that I am a journalist. I'm a writer. Those are which I in my mind it's like two different things, even though I engage it was just more of a comedy vehicle for me. But I think that the thing is and with Ben, he was kind of a little bit more hot takey. Like not swings, but like, you know, like you you kind of had opinions. I had opinions. Yeah, they're, they're more, I was voice. more like building arguments. Than yes, you, that's I guess. fair. Probably, <laughs> that's probably way to do it's it. It's like watching our own sports talk show. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but yeah. you were just sort of making like one-off cracks about yeah, I was just people's. Talking. Yeah, you know, I was just like just, yeah, yeah, just making jokes. And I was sort of but, yeah, crafting things that were mean, but with more meat to them. Right. Not necessarily better. Right. Um, but I think that yeah. in in the grand scheme of things, though, looking back on it, I think that those kind of weird, not typical, not particularly corporate ways of doing things got us noticed. It, 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 it cuts through the Do white noise. All the time. <laughs> I mean, part of the podcast when we started it was a little bit of an attempt to get back to that because we're a much more free, we, we, when we're talking, we crack a little bit, a few more jokes, right, right? You know, like, and it feels a little bit more natural in the way that I talk about tennis. And that was the thing about 40 Deuce was that as it started, that was just how I talked about tennis. Like, I didn't, I didn't, and I did want to take it to a place where it wasn't, because tennis is just like, it's such a buttoned up sport, at least that's what the perception is. Country club, you know, people wear white, um, <laughs> you know, there's no teeth to it. And I was like, let's like not do that. Let, let's talk about it in a very contemporary way. Let's talk about it in the terminology that we all use and, you know, and um, so it was a little bit different. And, but I think that what we both did was, was a little bit different. And that's why nowadays when you read a lot of blogs, you, um, you actually don't read the byline. Like you, you, you click on the content and you read the content and the content's perfectly fine for, the for whatever it is. And then you move on. But at the end of the day, it didn't do anything for you one way or the other. But at least I felt like the stuff that I wrote, you got a reaction one way or the other. And like, somebody would read it and be like, who the heck wrote this? Like, you know, and all of a sudden, like people begin to know your name. And, um, and that is helpful because part of the first battle is just getting someone to know who you are. 
Um, and then once that happens, then, you know, you start to kind of balance. One of my big things is like, I like just letting the player speak. But like my, what I bring to the table, hopefully in those interviews, is that I can get them to speak. Because a lot of players don't want to, or they don't really, they don't want to go there. And I think that like my time as a lawyer, I definitely kind of honed my interviewing skills yeah. <laughs> uh, quite a bit to where I can get them there. Um, and then I'm not actually writing, I'm just transcribing what they said. But I do like to give the players the mic, so long as they're being honest. Because I've done some interviews where they're just PR speak all the time, and I'm like, ugh. Not running that, like yeah. you know, that's because that's not honest. <laughs> so it's a different mindset. Yeah. Do you think that like your youth has given you any challenges in the field, or do you think it's helped you? And like, obviously, like you guys didn't have a background in journalism. Do you think that's helped you more than it's hindered you? I don't. The, the journalism part, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. If, being a journalism student, I feel like you learn really quickly on the job everything you learn in the classroom, more or less, which is valid. It's both you're learning in the classroom, but also. You can learn it in real life just as well. In terms of youth, I think it cuts both ways. Like with players, I think it's definitely an advantage, especially because for us, I mean, we're roughly in the same age demographic as the players, the athletes, and now they're coming up. They're, we're getting older, and they're still the same age, so feeling older. <laughs> that, that, that will go away. That advantage. But but um, but the older you know writers in their fifties and sixties might have it. They might have a tougher time relating to the players on some level. So that definitely can be an advantage. But there are other writers who might not take you as seriously when you're younger, for sure. Other I think editors that's a big one. that does happen. Institutionally, I think it's not it's not a positive to be young. I think the tennis is an old old white man sport, and and I know that for myself, being a woman and also a minority, I definitely feel it all the time. Like you know, you can see certain prejudgments, and um, it's weird and it's it's very jarring, especially internationally. But um, yeah, with the players, I, that's the big thing. I think, I mean, Ben's like the king of just like kind of awesome questions in press conferences, but some of my favorite interactions with him are like, when, like, was the Laura stuff with the One Direction? Oh yeah, there's like a, Laura was a big One Direction fan, so I would like quote like subtly like various One Direction lyrics or song titles in the, the, the questions. And none of the other people in the room would have any idea what's going on. And she, she would, would just, just be, be like, dying laughing. And so that was, yeah. And that it, was, so it allows you to establish the friendship, not friendship because you're not supposed to be friends with them, but like a connection, a connection yeah. to where they trust you and relate to you. Yeah. So thank you for listening to the show once again and for listening to us in various contexts. And thanks to College of Charleston for having us there. just there. If you want to follow us when we're not at the College of Charleston or when you're listening to us, you can follow us on Facebook by liking us facebook.com slash ncr podcast you can also follow us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis if you want to subscribe to the show on your various platforms of podcasting subscription and downloads that's awesome we can you can get us on all of those add us to your rss reader or subscribe to us on itunes and leave us reviews on itunes now if you have a question for a future episode we're going to try to do we're going to be doing some more question episodes as the play kicks up for sure in europe when it's a little bit slower weeks uh you can send them to us no challenges remaining at gmail.com we're going to close our last double-digit episode with a rant rave corner, as we have been doing lately. Courtney, anything got you ranty and ravey under the humid air of Charleston? Yes, I'm in a good mood in Charleston. It's uh, it's a good time, and uh, this time for this trip, it's the first time that I've ever packed an entire gaming system <laughs> to take with me to a tournament. So which Andy is, Murray. Yeah. I know, which is what I've done. I, I just got a, a PlayStation 4, which I'm 
pretty excited about because I've only had Xbox uh, consoles in the past, uh, Nintendo and all that, but Xbox next generation stuff. So I got a PS4. It's really great. I kind of love it a lot. I love it a little bit more than I thought I would. And I got it just a few days before I had to leave for Charleston. So I was like, well, most of the places that we stay nowadays have those little flat screen TVs and you just plug in an HDMI cable and you're good to go. So yeah, so I've just been playing that and it's been a wonderful way to like wind down. I've been sniping a lot of Axis soldiers, uh, playing a game called Sniper 3 Elite, which I was telling Ben the other day, like the only shooting games that I actually really like are World War II ones. So sorry if you're from an Axis country, uh, but it's I do kind of enjoy it. But we like you now. We've gotten along well, famously yeah. for years. Yeah, y'all recovered all right. Yeah, it's okay. Everybody's good. Yeah. So um, yeah, so that's been really fun and playing a bunch of different um, games. Uh, one of them called Last of Us has been fantastic. Uh, that I really like. So then there's also a game that I actually just started playing that so far I'm really enjoying called Life is Strange. And it's a little bit different type of game. Look it up. It's um, not very expensive. And it's kind of, I really like narrative style games, like games where you play a character and a story unfolds. Um, So yeah, that's uh, that's been really fun. My rave is a rave slash rant. Charleston is an unbelievable eating city. It is the one tournament that we really, really, I guess maybe Rome a little bit, but mostly Charleston is the one that's like an eating tournament. We get on our eating shirt and we go to town and eat our faces. And not off our faces, stuff our faces. And one of the main staples here we have is shrimp and grits, which is unbelievable. If you haven't had it, you should have it when you're in the appropriate areas of the country or an appropriate restaurant. It's kind of hard to screw up, but it's also great to do really well. Um, and so I've been getting a lot of shrimp and grits. I already had my first dose last night. It was delicious. My rant side of this is that this is more of a shrimp commentary in general. I was talking to Courtney about this. I don't understand why, especially in like shrimp and grits, where it's not like shrimp cocktail and you're eating the one by one. Shrimp and grits, the shrimp is kind of in solution in the mixture. Why people leave the tails on the shrimp? Because it makes it so much work. I want to have a plate presented in front of me that I don't have to do any more maintenance on. You know, I would like something that's like everything on the plate is edible. No, like, parsley shrimp or decoration. I want to have a full plate when it arrives, empty plate when it leaves, no debris afterwards. This goes for any sort of boned meat or anything. Not about that life, especially the shrimp tails. Just cut them off. But I managed. I just cut through all my shrimp at the beginning and then had my dream plate and then stuffed my face. But it's another step And then passed and out because Lindsay Gibbs, who's also here, who writes for The Changeover as well as Bleach Report and other outlets, our good friend on Twitter, at Lynn Sports, she's here. She and I met up at uh, the Mellow Mushroom in Charleston to watch the NCAA title game. And Ben was supposed to come or thought he might come for the second half. And we kept looking on Twitter and it was very, and he was like, oh, I'm just going to watch like the game in my room or something. I said I was going to take a nap. You're going to take a nap, like whatever. And we noticed that he's gone completely silent on Twitter and we're like, oh my God, he's like in a, he's out. And, uh, and Lindsay was like, how much did she have? Did he have to drink? I was like, he didn't have a lick to drink. Like this is a food coma. It wasn't just food. I had just driven a lot the previous day. It was residual tiredness slash food slash just sometimes you just want to sleep and i didn't need to stay awake and watch duke win well this is true. i think i'm the winner in this scenario yeah it was it was difficult to watch because yeah. it was it just felt inevitable so what is inevitable next week is episode 100 get excited for it so excited you should be really excited block out big chunks of time it's gonna be long it will probably be our longest episode ever by just, orders of magnitude well, we had one that was over two hours once, oh, okay but right. it's gonna be long so get excited very excited see you guys next time bye bye double digit super fun bye y'all later